sense of a thick self or a strong self and look at what that uh, feels like, what it's like, what some of the varieties of it are, and also to understand um, why it can be a problem. Uh, It's good to back up, and what I think I'll do is I'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes, then we'll do an exercise together, uh, and then we'll have maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes just for uh, open discussion about whatever's come up, questions, observations, and so forth. And that will take us towards lunch. Lunch is, we just came, didn't we? (laughs) Okay. Um, So first of all, just to say that the uh, sense of self is partly very ordinary and comes out of basic biological realities. You know, a sense of uh, wanting survival. You know, we can see, maybe remember your science experiments from whatever, junior high or whatever, middle school, where you saw uh, paramecia being very sensitive to like something uh, abrasive in the environment, right? Remember, some of you may have seen under microscopes how these little organisms, they like certain things and they don't like certain things. They judge certain things as dangerous to their survival, right? There is liking, we not really liking or disliking, but there's some kind of reacting for and against. And uh, a lot of our uh, sense of self uh, comes, I think, out of the, those biological roots, even though <clears throat> here we are with uh, very different kinds of experiences in some ways than paramecia. But in some ways, we're, we're similar. Um, and that sense of self uh, is there. That means that there are boundaries. There are things which are taken as good for survival, bad for survival, and so forth. And we can see how uh, much of the sense of self uh, occurs uh, in relation to some perceived sense of survival, or this I need, or meeting needs, or whatever it might be. And there's something very basic there. And yet, the question is, how given that basic biological grounding, do we live with wisdom? Do we live with compassion as opposed to simply being pushed and pulled by our reactions? And this is really what the great wisdom traditions of humanity have said. Well, if we're just, if we just go with the pushed and pulls, we live in a certain way that can be more self-centered, that can react, that can be violent, and and so forth. And somehow, what has evolved in many, many traditions is a sense of a way to live wisely with that basic biological heritage, that groundedness um, in having a self, wanting boundaries, having there being survival needs and so forth. And 
I think it's pretty clear that when we live as if survival is there at every moment, we may not be so wise. And it actually, what characterizes trauma, for example, is that we may be thinking my survival is at stake a large amount of the time. And we may project on that history from the past onto the present where it's actually not really appropriate. Sometimes it is, but very often it's not. And so all of this is a way to sort of navigate how do we work with, how do we bring in these qualities we call wisdom, that we call love, compassion, and so forth, into this basic experiential reality of being pushed and pulled, being reactive, and so forth, having needs. You know, we all have to eat to uh, survive, right? We have needs. How do we navigate all of this and reach our, the depths of our being? When you frame it like that, it's not always, not always so easy, right? And so a lot of this teaching about self and not self, I think, navigates those biological realities. And there's a way in which we don't deny a sense of self. Again, there can be a lot of confusion, as, as I mentioned earlier, that we somehow, that the self is bad, get rid of it. Um, I think we have a probably in the last 20, 30 years, a more mature understanding of that question due to some of the interface between psychology and meditation and just reflection on that. There, one of the quotes that I have in the, in the reading that I, that I gave, one of the quotes I have in the handout is from a uh, American monk named Tanis Arabiku who lives in Southern California, who wrote a very interesting book called Selves and Not Selves. And I have the um, reference for how you can get that online. And he, he sorts out a lot of things very skillfully. He says, uh, the issue is not what is my true self, but what kind of perception of self is skillful and when is it skillful? What kind of perception of not self is skillful or is, I should say, uh, is skillful and when is it skillful? And so it's, it's implying that there can be a sense of self or a sense of not self, both of which can be unskillful. And, and how do we sort that out? Right? And he says, a sense of self is an important part of the practice, especially a sense of self that encourages responsibility, heedfulness, and care. And he says, sometimes you have to do one thing at one stage and turn it around and erase it at another, meaning that sometimes you need to develop a self, and then at a later stage you go beyond it. This is really what's pointed to in the practice. There's, there's a kind of developmental model here. Um, he says, the path to the unconditioned is conditioned. The unconditioned is a Buddhist term for the sacred, for Nibbana, for what's sometimes called the deathless. That which is the aim of practice is to realize that. And there's a profound sense of being beyond the ordinary self there. But he says that you get there by developing the self. You know, the psychologist Jack Engler, who is in the next quote, said, I think probably through almost 30 years ago, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. <laughs> you know, 
that you have to develop a sense of self. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu, in his book, he really outlines this. He talks about uh, a number of different ways that we need to develop a self, that we need to have sort of a firm character, we need to be ethical. A lot of what would be there for early childhood education and much of education is developing a sense of responsibility, developing the ordinary capabilities of the mind. In order to meditate, you have to concentrate, you have to track, you have to be able to uh, know when you've gone this way or that way. One needs to be ethical. You see, I think I had a little reading from him here just about how that sense of self is crucial. Um, The Buddha's instructions teach you how to have a healthy attitude towards your mistakes. So you have to have a, a sense of learning, be able to be accountable, take responsibility. These, these are more in the ethical domain. To have a healthy sense of shame, one that comes with a high sense of self-esteem. You want to make sure that your actions don't harm anyone, right? These are all, these all if you don't have a sense of self, you don't take accountability, right? And so he's saying all of these are crucial in normal development. And there's nothing wrong with that sense of self. Oh, look what I did. Let me, let me look at that. Did I do that? That would be, that's clearly a sense of self, right? But that would be taken as something that's actually crucial for moving beyond that sense of self, that you can't really get to the deeper levels of the practice without having that firm sense of self, right? And so I think there's a lot of understanding of that in both psychological circles and in uh, spiritual circles. You know, you can find that very nicely said in this book by Tanisara Bhikkhu, which you may want to take a look at. And so um, that basis of having, we might say, a healthy self, a well-developed self, an ethical self, a self that can meditate, you know, again, it's not to be taken for granted. It needs to be developed in certain ways. And that has come to be an understanding that many people share. The flip side of that is a confusion that's often prominent, especially the last years, I think less now, among spiritual practitioners in which they say, may say, I don't need to develop the self is bad, get rid of it, you know? And people who maybe haven't developed in those ordinary ways who may confuse the lack of a normal developed self with entering into spiritual territory, right? You talk about not self, I know that pretty well, right? And so that's an area where there can be confusion. One term which is, was developed by a psychologist who lives nearby named John Wellwood is that of spiritual bypassing. People know that term? It's a very interesting term. It's the phenomenon where um, we use spiritual views and attitudes to uh, give us a reason why we don't have to develop in ordinary ways. I've sometimes spoken with people in kind of one-on-one work, where it seemed to me that what was really the best thing that this person could do would be to get a job (laughs) and really be grounded in ordinary life. 
maybe hasn't happened before, right? And a lot of resistance, often I'm given back spiritual views, you know, as to, oh, I really want to be into emptiness, right? right? And so that's important. This is sort of the flip side or the shadow side sometimes of spirituality. I have a, let me see if I can find this. Let's see. I have a friend named Mariana Kaplan. Some of you may know. Anyone know Mariana? Yeah, a few people. Mariana lives in Fairfax, and she's a, a teacher and writer. And she once wrote a little short story called Zen Boyfriends, which was about her experience of dating and dating people who practice spiritual bypassing. Hmm. <laughs> I thought I'd just read a little excerpt from the story. And the story apparently touched a nerve. It was a big hit, the short story, and was turned into a play, right? And actually, I have a friend who is one of the Zen boyfriends. <laughs> okay, so here's a little excerpt from the end of the story. And you can, you can Google it, you know, and read the whole thing for yourself. It's really, I mean, it's humorous, and a little bit downplayed her being a Zen girlfriend, but <laughs> I hope she doesn't hear that. <laughs> okay, um, but here's here's something. This is from this is from her interaction with one of her Zen boyfriends named Jake. This is this was uh, shortly after Jake had returned from a year and a half in India. Okay, and this is this is the dialogue. Jake, if we are going to hang out together, I need to feel like you're really here with me and not always so detached. His answer, who is the you who wants to hang out with me? <laughs> you can see where it's going. <laughs> I am the me and you are the you. <laughs> you imagine the teaching of not-self in the background, right? Okay. I am the me and you are the you. There is no difference, so we can really never be apart or together. It's all the same. You're full of shit. <laughs> but who do you think, I should say this with a certain accent, right? Who do you think is the me that is full of shit? I think it is you. <laughs> Who's getting angry? I'm getting angry. Look into my eyes. What do you see? You. <laughs> Look more deeply. Now, what do you see? I see a lonely man who thinks he's enlightened. Touche. <laughs> okay. Which kind of that last comment points to the need as we're really looking into self and not self, to have a lot of compassion, right? Because we, as we're looking more into this, we're, we'll see our constructions. We'll see our sense of strong self. And it can be somewhat humbling. It can even be a little bit disorienting at times to see we can get more self-conscious. So just to be aware that that's a possibility as we, as we really, you know, if we take the day long and look more carefully at the constructions of self, uh, again, again, helpful to know there is that sense of help, healthy self, but we're also looking at where the self becomes strong, where there's reactivity. Ultimately, we're going to want to look at that 
and see if we can let that go to ease more into that sense of a flow without that sense of reactivity. You know, again, it's more complicated because we need, if there's something beneath that reactivity, we may, we may need to heal that. So it's, again, it's not so simple. You know, if I have wounds, I just don't want to, oh, let me just let go of that. You know, I may need to heal that. That's important. And I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But we want to really bring in that sense of compassion, that sense of care. Um, it may be, as we look at this sense of self, as Trungpa Rinpoche once said, the Tibetan teacher, he said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. So you may need some, so the aspect of compassion is very important. So we want to, especially, again, I'll I'll come in a moment to that sense of the, the, um, the reactivity sometimes needing healing in a moment, but we want to especially look for where the reactivity becomes strong. This becomes a big part of our practice. We want to see where the self gets thick in ways that we've, you know, I've indicated in, in the guidance for the meditation, through the reactivity. Uh, we want to particularly look when we're really caught in it. What's that about? Where is there a strong sense of self? Um, I once taught uh, a number of years ago a class uh, with Diana Winston uh, in the East Bay called Greed Management. We had very few people sign up. <laughs> but we did have five people. We had five students and two teachers. And those of you who know the Donna system can know the Donna was not great. <laughs> but we had those, you know, we had, we had five, uh, and we were really interested in the topic. And what was interesting for me was that we really studied greed. And this is something, what did it look like when we're really in the midst of greed? It was very interesting to actually see it more clearly, to notice what that thick sense of self was like. You know, and what we noticed is that when, when I was in the midst of greed, or when someone is in the midst of greed, there's a very strong sense of my desires really, really matter. Other people's needs and desires do not matter. I do not care for consequences. There's no sense of consequences, right? It's just, I want this. Consequences are out the window. There's not wisdom, right? It's just like being called by the reaction. That's one of the reasons why the reactions and that strong sense of self are problematic because there's not much room for wisdom. Ultimately, we want to be able to work with our needs and work with our reactions, our wants, our desires, but bring in the wisdom, which means to a large extent, it has to be a little thinner. We have to be able to study it and see it so we can really work with and and look at when I'm caught in greed when I'm caught in wanting, when I'm caught in aversion. We want to look at our reactions of an interpersonal nature. When am I really caught in judgment of another person? We want to study these. What's going on? In large part, we want to really be experts on all of our own personal forms of reactivity. This is, this is part of the practice. I think those of you who have been in this while, you know that. We become experts on our own reactions. Those of you who thought you'd just come here, gain bliss, transcend, it's actually, it's actually very down to earth. We really spend time studying our own reactions, our own wanting, our own pushing away, and our own confusions. We do that over and over again. 
we look to where there's that strong sense of like and dislike, pleasant and unpleasant. And we'll come, come to this some in the afternoon because this comes out of a teaching of it being very important to track the sense of pleasant and the sense of unpleasant. The teaching as such, this is, this is actually the second foundation of mindfulness, is to notice when there's pleasant and unpleasant, because when there's pleasant, we will tend where there's not consciousness to grab hold of it. And where there is the unpleasant, we will tend, if there's not wisdom, just to push it away. And we'll proliferate, we'll get caught in it. So we want to keep on studying that. We want to, we want to study when the mind gets judgmental. We want to study uh, when I get defensive when I feel my survival is at stake, to the extent that we can to study that. We want to look at uh, self-image and so forth. We want to, we want to do that all uh, and see where that sense of self feels, feels thick. There's also another whole area that's a little trickier. And this, is, this connects with what I was talking about in relationship to uh, areas where there may be wounding. The areas I just mentioned are areas that actually appear in experience. I can say, oh, my self is getting thick now, right? I can study that. I can track that. There are also aspects of, of experience where we actually have a very thick or strong sense of self, but it's beneath the surface. It's more unconscious. Probably a lot of you, a lot of you know what I'm talking about. And I see this a lot because I teach a lot on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. And a lot of our judgments can often be very quick reactions, like, you know, I don't like that person, right? And a lot of them are, come from things that are not actually known so easily. So the thick self also manifests in what we might call the, I would say, the psychological unconscious and in social conditioning. There can be a very strong sense of self, and we may not know it unless we do certain kinds of inquiry. You know, I'll give an example or two from both the psychological and the social realm. And this, this makes it, the, the working with self and not self, a little more complicated. And for me, it brings in, you know, as we mature, the psychological and the social dimension. So psych- psychologically, I may, you know, an example that I may have is that, um, let's suppose that when I was four years old, my parents noticed I was really kind of rambunctious and angry a lot, and they, and they kind of stifled my anger and said, don't be angry, right? And then I know, you know, then a little later what starts happening, I notice other kids getting angry, and what do I say? Bad boy, bad girl, you know? I start judging, right? And if I get angry, I judge myself, right? And it, bec- and it basically, uh, that conditioning has gone subterranean. I actually have a strong, thick sense of self around angry. I am not an angry person. I am a good person. Good people don't get angry, right? And, you know, and then I notice, you know, then, and, I, and I just go live my life, and I judge angry people. I judge myself when I'm angry. And there's a sense, there, you can see how there's a kind of a th- sense of self there, but it's beneath the surface. And then, and then um, you know, I get, you know, I come to California, I go into therapy, and my therapist says, I think you have issues around anger, <laughs> right, or whatever. Maybe I'm in a relationship, and, uh, you know, I'm, 
actually drawn to someone who gets angry easily, but I don't admit it, but I still judge him or her or them. And, um, and I suddenly I start noticing, oh, I have, you know, at a certain point I say, oh, I have a thing about anger, right? And I start noticing I have this whole um, thick sense of self around anger, but it's been beneath the surface. And I can do psychological work, I can do work in relationships to explore that, to uncover that. And that could manifest in 10, 20, 30 different ways, right? Things beneath the things that are beneath the surface. I could have all sorts of other issues. I could come from a family where there's been a divorce when I was young, and I have a sense of, a strong sense of self develops when I start, when that gets triggered, that kind of pain, that wound gets triggered around being abandoned, let's say, right? And I have a whole sense of self that protects myself when I fear that I'm getting, that their abandonment's occurring. My partner goes away for the weekend, a thick sense of self comes, right? Oh, don't do that, you're bad, right? Is that making some sense? So again, we could go into this in all sorts of ways. And that, that's a more subtle aspect of self, and that needs in some sense to be worked with. We don't want to so much transcend that, we want to actually go to, into that and heal and transform in appropriate ways. It wouldn't be appropriate to, to just say, you know, transcend that or get over it, right? Someone has a wound around abandonment, we want to have some healing. So I'm bringing in that complexity because I think it's important. I'm not going to focus so much on it, but I want to recognize that. Same thing with social conditioning. We all internalize certain messages from the society, which in some ways construct a sense of self. It's probably most obvious where we have, you know, around the various kinds of hierarchies in the society, around race, gender, sexual orientation, age, what else? What else didn't I mention? Disability, maybe weight, you know, views of beauty, all sorts of things, right? And there's a hierarchy there, and we internalize the messages, and we can get a very thick sense of self, and sometimes not know it. It's kind of more obvious when one's on the, the, the negative side of a of a hierarchy, right? And we have what we sometimes call internalized oppression, right? People familiar with that? Know what that means? You take in the messages of society around any of those 10 or 15 variables. Some are more intense than others, right? And you take, we take that in and there can be a strong sense of self. Can be a negative sense of self, a judgment. You know, one, one of the most poignant examples came from uh, studies done in the 40s, uh, 40s and early 50s, by two psychologists, uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark, the so-called doll experiment. Anyone know that? That experiment it was done with African American girls in Harlem in that time, and uh, there were studies in which they showed them a black doll and a white doll and said, which is the good doll, which is the bad doll, and the African American girls said. The white doll is the good doll, age, ages six to nine, right? And which doll is like you? Some of them could not answer it. Some of them said, the black doll is like me. Some of them just had what we would call cognitive dissonance and just could refuse to answer. And so that we would call an example of internalized oppression. It's very, it can determine a very thick sense of self and that can be there. 
And again, that would need to be healed in various ways, both personally and socially. And we're, you know, we're a long way from doing that. That gets internalized. And that would be similar for other forms of uh, oppression, where there's a hierarchy, right? Whatever, gender, sexual orientation, so forth. Interestingly, the other side of that, which is more subtle, is that those on the upper side of the hierarchy also internalize a thick sense of self, but it's hidden, right? And it's very interesting, right? We would call that, or I think this is, I coined this term, I haven't heard anyone else use it, we would call that internalized privilege. It's the other side of internalized oppression. And there's a thick sense of self there, right? Which, but it's hidden and subtle, and people don't even know it's there, right? I feel superior as a whatever, as a man, as a white person, as a heterosexual, as a, you know, could be a young person, whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, and it's, it can get, it's very thick, but it's not seen. And so again, we need, would need special work to uncover that. So you see the, wor- the practice of dealing with the thick self. It, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I've actually been in two groups with... Uh, Buddhist-based groups looking at whiteness. When people open up to it, it's been very, very revealing. I've been surprised at how much suffering there is there. But it's beneath the surface and people aren't in touch with it. It's a very thick sense of self. And it's beautiful when people open to it. So is this making some sense? Yes. Yeah, and so I just wanted to name these two dimensions, the psychological and the social, because it adds some complications to this. Right? And I think we need to do the work. Um, the meditation itself doesn't necessarily go beneath the surface. It'll, we can work in meditation with what presents itself, and it's very crucial. And as we do some of that deeper work, maybe with the psychological and the social conditioning, it will present it, the deeper stuff will present itself, but it doesn't by itself. We have, sometimes have to deliberately go into that territory. So it makes a little more work. Sorry. If we want to really work with that thick sense of self, there are these multiple dimensions. So again, and this is again, this is my perspective. This is not the teaching the Buddha didn't talk about psychological and social conditioning, right? So I'm adding this as a contemporary way of making sense of this teaching. Okay, uh, but I, wa- I wanted wanted to do that. Okay, let me do let me do. Um, Having said that, let me do one practice, okay? One practice with you. Uh, this is a dyad practice. And um, we're going to do it, it's going to be a, a kind of a, a repeating question. And let me demonstrate it. Um, the question is going to be, tell me a way, let me see what I have here. Tell me a way in which yourself appears thick. Tell me a way in which, we could say it another way, tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Okay, and I want to do it as a repeating question. Pam, are you familiar with that technique, the repeating questions? Yes. Yeah, come up here and we'll demonstrate it. Okay. Okay, so I want you to, she's going to ask me the question, uh, tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Okay. Tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Oh, when I get into tangles with family member X. Okay. 
Mm. Thank you. Okay. Tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Um, when I get self-conscious. Thank you. Tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Mm. When I think I haven't given a good talk at Spirit Rock. Thank you. Okay. Tell me a way in which the thick self appears for you. Um, when I get confused or self-judgmental. Okay, so can you Thank you. So, <laughs> so you, get the, you get the sense? So it's, in, it's interesting practice, right? And so it's not something that we rehearse. And uh, if you want to do this with someone that you know well, that's sometimes helpful, but you can also do it with a stranger. And how much you disclose, totally up to you. This is really for your own purposes, okay? Get a sense of how we do the practice. We're going to just do it for about three minutes each, okay? Okay, and, um, okay, so find a partner right now and sit in proximity, introduce yourself to your partner and await instructions. I'll do it. No. Okay. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll give the instructions in a moment. Okay. Everyone have a partner and introduced yourself? Okay. Does anyone not have a partner? Very good. Oh, so we have uh, do you need one? Okay, anyone else not have a partner? Um, you can be uh, join a group of two and form one group of three. Okay, is that okay? Uh, is that okay that she joins your group? I will. I'll do. I'll do the timing, and but I just wanted to check. Uh, you have your group of three, and for the groups of two, we'll just have each person will have about three minutes, and then we'll switch, and then we'll come back to the large group. For the group of three, um, why don't you? Can you? Can you time yourself and do it? Uh, do it two minutes each, and. When I ring the bell to stop, if you can just pause for a moment, and so so everyone's quiet to start. Is that okay? Okay. So the uh, the line the, again, it's tell me a way that the thick self appears for you. Tell me a way that the thick self appears for you, and the person responds. And the response can be one sentence. You could go on for a minute if you want to. You, it's up to you how much. <laughs> the nature of your response, okay? You can talk for, you can, it's not the, you can do it one sentence, three sentences, five sentences, speak without sentences, utter bodily grunts, whatever. <laughs> okay. 
uh, up to you how you how you respond. Um, and after when the person's finished, and a lot of times it's going to be typically short responses like I did, then the person who asked the question says thank you, and then the person speaks again, or you say thank you, and then you repeat the question. Thank you. Tell me a way that the thick self appears for you. Person says, when I get self-conscious. Thank you. Tell me a way that the thick self appears for you. You know, with family member number uh, number three. Thank you. Okay. Got got it. Okay. And let it be. Let it kind of come from just your own spontaneity. Okay. Any questions before we begin? Okay. So just get ready. Uh, first of all, we have to decide who's going first. So I forgot that detail. <laughs> decide, decide in your group who's going first. Raise your hand if you're going first. Uh, going first, going first means answering, answering first. Okay. Raise your hand if you're gonna answer the question first, or answer. Tell me away. Okay. Good. Okay. So we're set. Um, okay. Let's, um, let's just take a, a short pause and I'll ring the bell, kind of set your intention, get your question together. And I'll ring the bell to start in about five or six seconds. Okay.
So finishing up your, your current thoughts. And uh, thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. And then we'll uh, switch roles. Okay. So the second person now is the uh, respondent who, and the other person says, tell me away and so forth. So everyone clear on the instruction? So again, let's have a little bit of a pause and I'll ring the bell to start the second, uh, second round, as it were, in about five seconds. Okay, tell me away.
So again, uh, thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.